Well, good morning, church. How are we doing today? Good, good, good to hear that. It's always a good day when we can come in here together and worship. My hope for you this morning is that despite any circumstances you might be facing, that as you lift up your voice and you sit underneath the, the teaching of God's word, that your hearts would be encouraged, that your joy would be, would be full. Uh, as, uh, as we are continuing on in our series through James, we are seeing James outline what it means to live the fullness of the Christian life. Now, we are continuing on in this series called Family Identity. And so what we are seeing is a definition of what it means to be a Christian. And this week, as I reflected on the text, I couldn't help but have my mind drawn to the story of how I proposed to my wife, Caitlin. Now, I knew I wanted to marry Caitlin uh, probably about three months into us dating, but I knew at that time I wasn't ready to propose. And the reason for that is because there was some work that still had to be done. I needed to, A, get a ring. I needed to get her father's blessing. And last but not least, I actually had to have a proposal plan. I had to have a plan in place of how I was going to actually do this. And so I had to put in some work. And thankfully, everything went smoothly. And I proposed to Caitlin in September of 2017. And as you can tell, it worked out as I referred to her as my wife, uh, which I'm I'm so thankful for because, again, while I was putting in a lot of work, it was worth putting in the work. I wanted to do that work because I wanted to show Caitlin how much I loved her. I wanted to show her that I was excited to marry her. When we love someone, our work will oftentimes prove that. We're willing to put the work in to show someone that we love that we love them. And if we're not willing to put in that work, well, that could be evidence, too, that maybe we don't love them as much as we say we do. And see, and that's what James is going to show us today, is that works are the evidence of an active and living faith. So today's text is going to give us two reasons for why the Christian life is known by its fruits. Again, today's text is going to give us two reasons why the Christian life is known by its fruits. Our first reason this morning for why the Christian life is known by its fruit is that a fruitless faith is worthless. A fruitless faith is worthless. Look back with me at verse 14. It says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them things that the things that are needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And so for the, the first thing that we need to recognize this morning is the connection that James is making between faith and works. Can a faith with, he, asks, he starts by asking an important question, can a faith without works save? Now this is a tension that the church has wrestled with throughout the centuries. Do we play any part in earning our salvation? Do any of our good works earn our status as redeemed with God? Well, the Apostle Paul says this in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The Apostle Peter says this in 1 Peter 1, 5. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 
And even James himself said this in, in chapter one, verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And so if God's word is the authoritative basis in which we answer this question, do we contribute with our works to our salvation? Then the answer is simply no. And so what is James getting at with posing this question to start off this part, part of the letter? Well, in verses 15 through 16, James gives us an image of a poor person. Now, if you've ever been to an event downtown, a concert, uh, a sporting event, you may be able to imagine what this person looks like. Because outside of these events, oftentimes there are homeless people with cups asking for spare change. Now, it can be easy to make judgments for why those people are out there with cups. I'm not saying everyone is doing it with the right heart, but the, the reality is, is that there are people in our context that go to bed at night cold, that go to bed at night hungry. And the change that gets dropped in their cups allows them to basically struggle for their basic needs, for their basic provision. And so what if you and I went up to this person and we said, be blessed, sleep, sleep well tonight. And then we, we walked away without giving them anything. They give them anything. Would, would any of us in here say that that is true compassion? I'd venture to say that the answer would be no. And I would guess that the answer would be no because by not giving them anything, our actions have proven that our works, by our, our actions have proven that we actually don't mean what we say. Right? And that's the point that James is trying to drive home this morning. See, that works are the basis on which authentic faith is proven. Works are what back up words. And so if you wanted someone who was truly without, someone who didn't have food to feel like you truly cared for them, that you truly want them to be blessed, getting them a, a meal, a nice hot meal, would go a long way in proving that. And see, and that's what James is trying to show us here. He's not trying to say, do we work for our salvation? Do we earn our status as being redeemed? No, but he's, he's trying to show us that words that mean something lead to action. Words that are contrary to works are meaningless. They don't mean anything. Because I can get up here and tell you how much I love my wife. I can sit here and, and, and give you this whole spiel of how wonderful she is and how great she is and how much I love her. But if I get out from behind the pulpit and I begin hurling insults at her on the way home, my actions have now proven that my words were meaningless. And that's the same for us today as we sit here. We can make proclamations of faith. We can say with our words that we love God. But do we evidence that? Do we prove that in obeying his commandments by living a life of obedience? Because Jesus simply puts it in John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so while works don't earn our place as a disciple, while they don't get us entry to the table, they do show that our hearts belong to him. 
Because we can't come in here and worship this morning and feel confident in our position in life if our lives don't line up with his word. And so while faith begins with a proclamation, it is evidenced by the fruit that grows. Because if the tree of your life is bearing rotten fruit this morning, then there is something wrong with the tree. Fruitless, fruitless faith is not only worthless because empty words are meaningless, but this faith is worthless because it doesn't do anything to differentiate us from the enemies of God. So now, now this, is a, this is a heavy progression that James is building up in his argument. Not only are your words meaningless, they don't prove anything, but in fact, your words are no different than what the enemies of God say. Is this, is this true, though? Do the enemies of God proclaim words of belief? Let's look at, uh, we'll, we'll look at here at Mark 5, 7. It says, And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. And so James says here in, in verse 18 and 19, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. And so Mark gives us this story about Jesus confronting a demon-possessed man. And the demon-possessed man proclaims words of belief. He calls him, he, he says, Jesus, son of the most high God. He recognizes Jesus' Godship. But he shudders these words because these words that he says don't, don't lead him to love Jesus. They don't lead him to bow down before him and worship him. No, demons recognize God's authority. They, he recognizes Jesus' supremacy over him. He says, do not torment me. He recognizes Jesus has, has this authority over him. But there's no doubt that demons do recognize God for who he is, but they despise him. With their words, they can make proclamations of belief of who he is, but they hate him. And that is proven by the works that they do. Our works show where our heart is. John MacArthur puts it this way. Demons are essentially orthodox in their doctrine, but orthodox doctrine is no, is no proof of saving faith. And so we can sit here this morning and have perfect doctrine. We can have all the, I think we have all the answers. We can read all of the right books while still not having a personal relationship of Jesus. Because intellect alone is not enough to manufacture love and faith. How can we sit here and live a life of sexual morality and believe that that is worship to God? How can we be devoted to drunkenness and believe that our hearts belong to him. No, we, we cannot make professions with our mouths, continue to live as enemies of Christ, and believe that we have a living and active faith. Do not be deceived this morning. Is there anything in your life today that would declare that you are following a different God? Look at your works. If your works don't express a love for Jesus, then why would we believe that we love him? Again, faith without fruit is worthless. It's not even a real faith. And this brings us to our second reason why the Christian life is known by its fruit, and that is works are the sign of a living faith. 
works are the sign of a living faith. Look back with me at verse 20. It says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that faith was active along with his works. And, his faith, and that faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And the same way was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers sent out by, and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from the works is dead. And so James here is making a shift in his argument. He's shifting to say, if you still don't believe that, our, that faith without works is useless, let me give you some examples from Scripture. But he begins this shift with a Greek word, kinos. And here we see it translated as foolish. Now, that word can also be translated as useless, ineffective, and vain. And so he's saying, if you are a person who believes that your faith that your words alone produce life and faith, you are useless. You, are, you yourself are a useless person. Powerful words to drive home a powerful message. You best believe if that James's audience wasn't paying attention up until this point, they, he's got their attention now, right? And so he starts off by giving us an example through Abraham, the father of our faith. And so he draws to this story of Abraham sacrificing his son Isaac at the altar. Now, if you're not familiar with that story, I would encourage you this afternoon to go and read Genesis chapter 22. But quick spoiler alert, uh, God stops Abraham from sacrificing Isaac. But the emphasis that James is making here using this example is that Abraham's faith was alive. His faith in God was proven by the fact of his loving obedience was willing to give up anything, including the thing he wanted most his son Isaac, his promised heir. And see, and so he was willing to do whatever it took. And you and I do the same thing to prove our love to those that we love. I think back in our, me and Caitlin's story, back to when we were dating, and I was driving a 1997 F-150. And I'm telling you, this thing was a gas guzzler. I was, I was lucky to get 12 miles to the gallon Actually, I would do this thing where I would sit on my driveway like with it up like this so the gas like, dial would go up and that would give me a true judge of could I make it to her apartment. And because additionally, Caitlin, Caitlin lived in Lake Orion and I lived in Warren. So I had my F1, 1997 F-150, a 40 to 45 minute drive. And additionally, I only made $10.50 an hour at, the jo- at my crappy job. And so I was literally pouring all of my, every single penny I had into my gas tank to go and see Caitlin two or three times a week at her apartment. But in my heart, I knew it was worth it. It was worth pouring every penny I had, even though I didn't have many pennies to pour, because I, I loved her, and I still love her. And when, <laughs> and, when we, and when we love someone, we're willing to do what it takes to show that. You know, we have a newborn now, and that newborn wakes up in the middle of the night needing food sometimes. And in her love for me, Caitlin will get up and feed her so I can get rest for work the next morning. And when I wake up in the morning at, at six o'clock, I get up 
and I prepare a bottle and I make sure the dishes are clean, I make sure the laundry is done, and I try to give her a couple more hours of sleep before I have to go to work. You see, because love is expressed through action. And Abraham's life is also evidence that, that works prove a living faith. And that, that faith, his faith was justified to those around him by his works. When we see that he was justified by his works, his works proved to those around him who he, who, where his allegiance was, where his heart was. Now, James continues by using another example here, the prostitute Rahab. Now, if you're not familiar with that story either, I would encourage you today to go home and read Joshua chapter 2. Again, another spoiler alert. In this story, Rahab hides Israel's spies who, they were her enemy. They were the enemy of the city, but she hides them. And despite being interrogated by officials in her city, she sends them out another way. James is giving us an example of not only just an act of faith that's willing to sacrifice, but sacrifice one's own life. She's willing to give it all up for following God. What an example of a true and active faith. Because why, if, if your faith in God was merely a proclamation, why give up your life? I mean, we can go to the extent of giving up, you know, we can give up some resources, but to give up your life for God, why would we be willing to give up our one life if we didn't truly believe in him? Jesus says in Matthew 16, 24 through 25, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Is there any sacrifice too great for following God? Are, are we so rooted in our faith and the love of God that we would be willing to show it through sacrifice? You know, when I look at the church today, particularly in our country, I, I can't say I feel confident that the answer is Yes, because when I, when I look at the, the climate, we see people who find the gathering weekly on a Sunday morning to worship with other believers to be too sacrificial. What about giving up our lives? You know, but I, I think, what if we shifted our perspective? Because when I, when I make that evaluation, there's something important to note, is that when I make that evaluation, I see a culture that views sacrifice for following Christ as loss. But what if we shifted our perspective from viewing sacrifice as loss to sacrifice as gain? Because that's what Jesus points us to. He says to give up our life is to, to get it. To sacrifice in the Christian dynamic is to gain, not to lose. But unfortunately, the church today evidences that it's more viewed as true loss. That even gathering on a Sunday morning come second and third place sometimes. But what if, what if that perspective shifted? What would that look like for the active and living faith of the church? Well, it would show by our works that we have an active and living faith and we're declaring that faith and, and we're declaring that faith that we have in Jesus. It's also the avenue, these works are the avenue in which we experience the fullness of, of joy. And see, and that's part of the, the perspective change. That when we start to understand sacrifice as gain, we don't see it as sorrowful, we see it as joyful. 
our works are a declaration of the living faith that we receive through Christ. Is your life declaring that today? Maybe you're sitting here this morning and feeling discouraged by this message. You might be thinking, how could I ever prove through my works that I have a true and living faith? How could I ever do enough? That's legalism. And I want you to stop right there. That's where your mind is going. And I want you to picture this image. I want you to picture an image of a person lying in a hospital bed. Now, the doctors come in and said, this person is in a coma. Now, this person can't sit up, can't eat on their own, but they're breathing. Their hearts are pumping. And they are seeing the the, the bare functions that are needed for life to be present. But would any of us say that's the optimal life? I wouldn't. They can't go to dinner with friends and family. They, they couldn't go on a, a nice, beautiful day like this and go for a, a bike ride. No, that, that's, they are limited in the, the joy that they can experience. Life is present, but they are limited in the joy that they can experience. And the same is true for the Christian life. Because if you're in a place this morning where you're feeling convicted that maybe my works don't reflect a vibrant Christian faith that is surrendered fully to Jesus, that doesn't mean you don't have faith. And it doesn't mean that your faith isn't there. It could simply mean up until this point, you haven't seen the true beauty in surrendering your life fully in every aspect, in your time, in your resources, and even with your own life. The beauty of surrendering those things to God. It could mean that to this point, um, you know, again, you haven't surrendered, but and something we need to know is that an immature faith is still faith. An immature faith is still faith. But we don't want, just like the person in a coma, we don't want that to be where our hope is stored. We don't want to keep the status quo. And so we don't need to, we don't want to look at living in obedience to Christ in a matter of how much can we do? Can we do enough? Will I ever be able to do enough? Again, that is legalism. But when we look at living in faithful obedience, we can now see how can I better glorify God with my life? And as a result, experience the fullness of joy that is found in him. John 15, seven, uh, verse seven through 11 says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Christ is the prototype of an active and living faith. He lived in faith to his Father by abiding in his love and obeying his commandments. And as a result, we're told that Jesus went joyfully to die for us. Joy, when we see, again, when we see an act of faith as experiencing joy, 
works become less about, about sacrifice and loss and more about gain. To live in true obedience not only gives evidence to faith, but it is to abide in the love of Jesus and to experience the fullness of joy. Maybe you're sitting here today and the concept of this joy, this joy that is really never ending, that God continues to freely give to us. Maybe it's a new idea to you, but the opportunity is freely given because God's word tells us that if you were to proclaim with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead so that you may find new life in him, you will be saved. The Christian life is known by its fruit. And that fruit leads to true joy and God's glory. Let's pray.